right, well, good morning. It's good to see you here. And before I get started in my sermon, I just have a few things I want to make sure I cover, uh, announcements and thank yous. And Chris is always so appreciative of me, but I'm so glad to work alongside of him. And the truth is, last week with uh, Stu Gerard coming in the concert and all that we did, it's really a result of his vision and his ability to dream. Um, I was doing a series on the Beatitudes. It really started out of the uh, small group that we were in talking about what does it mean to be blessed. And Chris's idea was, why don't we just email a guy who wrote a book and an album on it and let's see if he'll come. And people like me don't dream big like that. And I'm so glad to work alongside and be married to someone actually who dreams big. They need practical people like us, otherwise we'd go broke. But uh, um, I'm really glad to work alongside somebody who longs to see and risk to see Jesus the mission of Jesus and the mission of our church move forward. But, uh, so that's that. I wanted to thank Chris and just let him know how much it's meant to me to work alongside of him. And our music is stunning. And if you were at that concert, it wasn't just having Stu Gerard here. In fact, the thing that amazed me the most was not even Stu Gerard. He was nice. But it was Casey just singing the music alongside of it. It was just unbelievable. And so thank you to everybody who did that, to Casey, to, uh, to Chris, and it was a really special weekend for, for us, and uh, it was a special weekend in the life of our church. We have a few announcements I want to keep before you and make sure that you're aware of as we enter into the holiday season. You'll notice we've got a Christmas tree. It's not even Thanksgiving, so it seems a little early, and some of you are purists, and you don't like Christmas trees until after Thanksgiving. I'm usually like that, but this Christmas tree is representative of an initiative, an outreach we do every year called Angel Tree. Angel Tree is a... Uh, an initiative we do through the Ontario County Jail, which we've supported the chaplain there for years. Our own Dave Seeley has done that role for almost, for he's been involved with it for over 30 years. And uh, he has recently retired and a new uh, chaplain has arose, Bill Robinson. But the ministry of Angel Tree continues. And the ministry is this, that the incarcerated men and women there, they can sign up for this program and we as a church can buy gifts for the children of incarcerated inmates, and these presents go to, to those families. And so you'll notice on the tree back there, there's a sign-up sheet. If you take one of those slips, make sure you fill out your name and which slip you take, and you have a couple weeks. We need the gifts back by December 10th. You buy the gift, you wrap it in Christmas wrapping, and you put it under the tree. It gives us sort of like a Christmas decoration in our lobby. It looks like we're going to celebrate Christmas, and we are, and uh, you really bless a bunch of different kids. Also today, if you signed up, I want to make sure you are aware, today is our membership workshop. If you would have already signed up for that, that's going to be at noon in the chapel. That's going to be upstairs and to the left. There's great signage. You can follow that and get there. And if you didn't sign up and you'd like to go, uh, we still have a few slots. You have to see me. and can't just come, but you have to see me. But if you'd really like to come and just hear what our church is doing and how you can be involved, uh, that is a great opportunity to do that. The membership workshop is not just for people who want to become members. Of course, we want people to become members. It's for anybody who wants to know what we are doing as a church and why and how you can get involved. And so it is not a timeshare pitch. I always joke about that. There will be no forced signing of membership documents, but you'll get a chance to hear from Ruth, our children's director, Chris, uh, and myself about what we are doing and why we are passionate about it and how you can be involved. A couple more things. Next week, uh, or two weeks from today, is an all-church business meeting. According to our Constitution, we have to allow you guys, let you guys know about any business meeting two weeks in advance. Our 
uh, congregational business meeting for the year is December 3rd. We have a prospectus back at the Welcome Center. Uh, the congregational meeting on December 3rd is when we will approve our budget and we will elect our new officers for the 2018 year. And lastly, next this is the last week of our series on Beatitudes. Next week we start... Uh, Getting Ready for Christmas. Our Advent series, which is entitled very creatively Advent, starts December 3rd. And next week we are doing a special worship experience called called Prepare Him Room. And I am really excited about this. Chris, Sarah, and myself have been working hard on this. Sarah wrote, my wife, a lot of the liturgy that we are going to be singing, the language and the prayers. There's going to be, it's going to be a real unique service in which we begin to think about those things that burden us around us in the world. As we look around our world, there's tons about our world that is not the way it should be. It doesn't matter if you've ever been in church or not. You know that certain things don't belong where they are and how they are. And there's all kinds of things if we can be self-aware and honest enough about ourselves that are not the way they should be. We say we should do some things and we don't do it. We say we won't do some things and we can't stop ourselves from doing it. And so next week is all about Laying before God those things that burden us, that cause us to be distracted and unfocused on our faith with God, those things in our world and those things in us ourselves personally, and to take an hour to ask God and to lay our concerns before him, to confess before God all that he is doing in our lives to transform us and to confess where we are not right with him, and then to just spend some time praising him. And so it's going to be music, it's going to be scripture, and it's going to be prayers, and it's going to be beautiful. That's next week, and that gets us ready for our Advent season, which begins December 3rd. You'll notice in the lobby we have these little cards. They just say Advent on them. It's got a beautiful little graphic that Chris designed, and it gives our service times, and it gives our service dates for the Advent series. I would encourage everybody to go back there. If, if you believe in our church and want to help us spread the mission that Jesus is beautiful and that he is the hope of the world, I encourage you to take two or threes. I've done it, two or three of these. I've done it myself already. I put three. I'm a go-getter in my wallet. And then if anybody asks you about church, not that that happens often, or if anybody at any time says something's not going well in their life, if somebody says they're not prepared for something they've got next, or if maybe you move to a neighborhood and there's someone new where somebody says, I'm not from here, that will be your cue to take out one of these cards and say, well, if you're not from here and you don't have a church, or maybe, you know, why don't you try ours? I love it. Or if they say things aren't going well, or I'm not prepared for what's coming next, you can say, I have found that when things aren't going well, or when I don't feel prepared, church is something that really helps me. And if you are honest when you say that, and not just gimmicky, what studies show that cannot be substantiated, I read this in a blog, is that, and it didn't cite the study, so studies that cannot be substantiated show that if you have a close relationship with someone, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, and you are not weird or pushy or mean, and you invite them to church 82% of the time, that's 8 out of 10, 8.2 out of 10 times. They will come once just because you have a close relationship with them and you and invited them. But did you know, according to this study that cannot be substantiated, that only 2% of Christians actually that go to church invite people to come to church? I think that's probably because intuitively many people know that church is not the kind of place that 
their family, friend, coworker, and neighbor would be welcome at. We, I want to say this as clearly as possible, are trying to be the kind of church, and we must be the kind of church that your unchurched, underchurched family, friend, coworkers, and neighbors can come to and find a place for. And I would love to see that 2% of our people, I'm sure we're more than that. I hope we're more than that. I would like to see that skyrocket and become a movement where we all are so transformed by the beauty of Jesus that we can't wait to share the beauty of Jesus with others. And we just want to be one way that can help empower you and encourage you to do that. So take these cards, put them in your wallet, invite. This is the time of the year where even in the mall, they're singing our songs. They are ready to come. So invite and help us further our mission of introducing people to Jesus. And if you do so, you will not be left behind. We will follow him together. So with all that said, that's just foretaste. Here's the sermon. We're in the eighth week of a series on the Beatitudes. It's the last week for there are only eight Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a series of statements by Jesus in which he tells us what it looks like to be blessed. If you were to ask the average person, what does it mean to be blessed? The average person would probably say, uh, or if you were to go on Twitter and, and type in hashtag blessed, I did that once, the only time I've ever been on Twitter. And you would find all kinds of things. You would find people who are, feel blessed because of relationships they have. That's nice. Obviously good. You would find people that feel blessed because of opportunities or promotions that they got. And blessed because of possessions that they have. <laughs> but just the most cursory reading of Jesus' statements in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, would let us know that Jesus believes that blessing goes way deeper and way more unexpected than just possessions, opportunity, and even relationships. For what Jesus says in the Beatitudes is both countercultural and it's unexpected. If you're here for the first week, you're really coming in at the end, but uh, I've I made up this little sheet. Actually, Kathy did it, our office, our communications director, which summarizes all of the Beatitudes that we've looked at so far, and it even gives the answer for the last one, so just don't look ahead. But if you want a way to remember them, that's a good place to go. But even the most cursory reading would say, this is not what I would have expected if I were to write up a list of what it looks like to be blessed. But what I would say to anybody churched, unchurched, anyone. We all want to be blessed. We all want to be happy. And we're pursuing it in all kinds of different ways. And the most cursory viewing of any current or older sitcom would teach us that the ways that we have pursued the blessed life are not working. And so maybe we should take the words of Jesus seriously. If he is, who he claims to be. He is the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all, and he knows how we work. And if it seems counterintuitive, it's because it is. <laughs> but what we've tried for a long time apart from God has not worked. And so let's try to at least engage and listen seriously to someone who claims to be the God of heaven and earth and who we believe to be so. And so let's take a look. The Beatitudes. Today we come to the eighth one. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Found on page 786. If you're using the blue book in front of the blue Bible in front of you. 
And I'd encourage you to turn there, page 786, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. You'll notice that this beatitude, unlike the other ones, has the beatitude itself found in verse 10, and it has a little extra commentary in verse 11 and 12, a little bonus coverage. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This beatitude is inviting us to ask two questions. They're the same questions that every beatitude asks us to ask. Who is blessed? And secondly, how are they blessed? What is the result of the blessing? Who is blessed and how are they blessed? This beatitude specifically challenges us to ask, who are those who are persecuted for righteousness? And secondly, how are those who are persecuted for righteousness blessed? How will those who are persecuted because of righteousness blessed? So let's jump right in, shall we? First, who are those who are persecuted for righteousness? The language of persecution or suffering is really interesting in the Bible. There's a lot, a lot about it. And I want to, as we start, make two observations from the text. The first observation is this, that persecution in the Bible seems to be something that the authors believe is inevitable. Persecution or suffering seems to be a teaching that is inevitable if you really are following Jesus. Take for notice Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians is interesting. It's part of four epistles of Paul that are referred to as the prison epistles. That can be a little confusing because Paul actually didn't write these when he was in prison. He was under house arrest. He is later put in prison in another, and writes another series of three epistles that we'll look at one in a moment. But here he's under house arrest, so he isn't free. He's under house arrest, but he's still is living relatively comfortably, and he has a relationship with some of the people who are his kind of guards. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. What Paul seems to be saying here is that all of those who has been, have been granted the ability to see the beauty of Jesus have been granted the ability not just to see him and believe in him, but have been granted the right, the privilege to suffer for him. Later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, in what is called the pastoral epistles, in which Paul is literally, at this point, according to tradition, in a pit that has been dug in Rome, and he is in the very last days of his life. In fact, if tradition is accurate, Paul is killed by beheading at the very end of his life, and scholars believe... Uh, some do, that that's actually a really complicated issue, which I won't talk about. But scholars believe he wrote this at the very end of his life, right before his beheading. And he says in this last book of his pastoral epistles, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer persecution. So the teaching of the Bible seems to be this, that Christians who follow Jesus truly, will suffer persecution. But the Bible also uh, says it's more complex than just suffering. 
The Bible seems to suggest not only will Christians suffer persecution, but that not all suffering or persecution that we undergo is really suffering for righteousness. In other words, not all suffering that we go through, not all hard times that we experience are a result of what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. Persecution for the sake of righteousness. To see this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the first epistle of the Apostle Peter. We're going to go first to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. The Apostle Peter wrote two epistles, 1 and 2 Peter. I think this is why I like the Bible so much. It's so clear in who, what's happening. First uh, and Second Peter. And in the epistle to Peter, he is writing to a community of believers who are experiencing significant suffering and persecution. And the book of First Peter is all about having hope in that context. And as a result, the book of First Peter has a lot to say about suffering. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 19, the text says... For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The context of this text is in the context you see it real clearly in verse 18 of Paul addressing how we should live in a pagan society and part of this pagan society is the relationship of slave and master right verse 18 he says and he's really speaking to slaves as a part of being a slave in this pagan in this ungodly broken world culture there are things that you will endure that are wrong now if you do wrong Peter says, and you suffer, what commendation or what good can come from that? You are are being punished for doing wrong. But if you have not done any wrong, as in the case of the slaves in this master relationship oftentimes, and you suffer for it, God is on your side, and he will bless you. And it is noticed. But we see that there's a difference, don't we? There is suffering for doing wrong and there is suffering for doing right. The second text I want to bring your attention to is 1 Peter 3, verse 13 through 18, where Peter continues this uh, thread of suffering. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's a couple key moments in this little section. The first is in verse 13, where it says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? This is one of those rhetorical questions that begs an answer of, well, not many, right? It reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But if you remember that verse, 
you'll remember what comes after it, where Paul says, for against such there is no law. In other words, our culture at times, maybe not just ours, but around the world as as well, is unfriendly to Christianity and sometimes is more than just a little unfriendly. I don't think we experience that aspect that much in this culture, but certainly it is happening around the world. All you would have to do is go to the Voice of the Martyrs website to see it. But Peter is bringing up something that's important in verse 13, that if you are eager to do good, most people are going to be all for it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against such. There is no law. But Peter doesn't stop and just say, be eager to do good, and if you do, you should be okay, although that's not always true. He then goes on and kind of gives you, develops this idea of what it would look like to be eager to do good and to hold your faith well in a culture that is against Christianity, for that's the context of 1 Peter. Notice it in chapter 3, verse 15. It's a very well-known verse because it tells us how we are to share our faith. It says, Be ready always to give an answer to the hope that lies within you, but do this with gentleness and respect. What Peter is saying is, first off, the way we share our faith is not a confrontational, in-your-face type of thing. Be ready always to, to give an answer to those who ask, you see? Not, I will force you, I will manipulate you, I will coerce you. But for those, your friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors, who ask you about your faith, be always ready to give an answer. But notice what it also says. Do so with gentleness and respect. Peter goes on, and because this epistle is all about suffering, he goes on and he continues to teach us a little bit more about suffering. And he does it in chapter 4, verse 12 where he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Here, 1 Peter 4 gives us a few more interesting insights. Do not be surprised when you suffer. Like, don't let that take you unaware. And in verse 15, he says something very, very, very interesting, doesn't he? If you suffer, let it not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of other criminal. And most of us uh, are good on that account. And he says, or even as a meddler. He's saying, here, there is a kind of suffering that you can go, that comes from doing what is wrong. Of course, we would all say murder, thieving, other criminal activity is wrong. But he says, even as a meddler, meddler is just someone who gets involved in other people's lives, who gossips and causes relational chaos by their language. If you suffer for those reasons... You are not suffering according to the eighth beatitude because of righteousness. You are just suffering. The eighth beatitude, as we are looking at this morning, though, is looking at 
suffering or being persecuted because of righteousness. I'm convinced that there are many Christians, I don't know what that is, I don't know a percentage, I don't have any unsubstantiated statistics about it, but I suspect there are many Christians who are not liked. They're probably not liked by the people at their work, by their families, often by the, their, the people they sit with at church. They're not liked because of righteousness' sake. They're unliked because they're unlikable in their personalities at times, maybe overwhelmingly. I remember when I was in high school, I had very few friends, very few friends. That may seem hard to believe, but very few friends. Now, here's why I had no friends. I wasn't friendly. I thought everybody around me was a threat to my faith and would pull me down. So I went in the library and ate lunch by myself. I don't like to admit that, but that's the truth. I didn't need to give you any other reasons to think I'm not cool. I do that enough. But there are so many Christians that by their unfriendliness or their mean-spiritedness turn people away from them and it has very little to do with their faith. Maybe it's a perversion of how they see their faith lived out, but it has very little to do with their faith. It has everything to do with an unlikable, mean, unfriendly spirit. In fact, 1 Peter 3.13 seems to be suggesting that if you are eager to do good, suffering is less likely. This may seem like a mixed message where Paul says it's inevitable that you will suffer and Peter says if you are eager to do good and live out your life in a gentle and respectful way, you are less likely to suffer. And it may seem like mixed messages, but our world is a complex place. Here, I think you're less likely to suffer. I think in other portions of our world, you are going to suffer. I don't think I'll ever forget the imagery of the orange jumpsuits in the beach with ISIS, yeah? The Coptic Christians in Egypt. There are differences, but on the whole, our suffering should be as a result of righteousness and not as the result of mean-spirited unfriendliness or forceful, manipulative, coercive actions. And so it seems to me that this is a super important topic uh, because so many Christians I know have heard, well, I'm going to suffer anyway, and have used that as grounds to just not really consider their behavior very well. And so I would like to take some moments here and develop what does it look like to suffer for righteousness' sake and what does it not look like? And I'm going to start with the negative. What does it not look like to suffer because of righteousness? The texts that we've been looking at make this very clear. First, it does not like, look like suffering because of wrong actions, often evil actions, or stupidity. So you are not suffering for righteousness sake if you act stupidly or if you do evil actions. Remember Seinfeld, there was Uncle Leo, and in Uncle Leo, everything that went wrong in his life he thought was anti-Semitism. Remember that? doesn't look like it, but that's okay. That's true. Um, I remember the other day, uh, I host a small group. I have a very long driveway, and so first in, last to leave type of thing. We have to take home our babysitter, and so I always park on the grass next to my driveway, but I don't have enough grass that I can park there without 
having my car extend into my sidewalk. I've done this for months, maybe a year I've done this. Well, just this past week, I was going into my car after Thursday, after my small group, and when I opened my car, a little yellow envelope fell out of it, which was very convenient because it had a place for my check to go, and I got a parking ticket. Now, I got that parking ticket. I honestly didn't know that I couldn't park on the sidewalk, although common sense should tell me that that probably wasn't a good idea. But desperate times, desperate measures, yeah? And so I went and paid my ticket. But I wasn't suffering because I'm a Christian. I was suffering because I was stupid, yeah? It's the same thing when we do evil actions. When we commit acts of evil, thieving, murdering, or other criminal activity, according to Peter. That is not suffering because of righteousness. That is called punishment for wrong behavior. So we don't suffer for righteousness when we commit acts of evil, wrong, or when we commit stupid acts. Second, we do not suffer when we commit... (laughs) We do not suffer... uh, We are not persecuted when we are overly zealous or fanatical. Now, this one's a little more tricky, isn't it? We are not suffering for Jesus because of righteousness when we are fanatical or overzealous in our personality or our actions in the way we hold our faith. I once attended a funeral, and it was done in a church, and the funeral was, I don't even remember if it was a male or female, but it was done for someone who is deceased, and it is in many funerals that had a section in it where someone could come forward and say something, and it was an open mic, so there had been probably four or five people who'd come and said nice things about the deceased, and then one other person came forward, and I promise I'm not lying about this, and it's not really funny. But this is one of those things that's so awful that you almost want to laugh, but it just takes your heart into your chest and crushes it. And there was a person that got up at the funeral after everybody else said nice things, and this person got up and said, the person who we are celebrating this day is in hell. And if you do not believe in Jesus, you will go there too. That is not, well, let, me, let me back up. That person probably didn't have a lot of people wanting to sit with them and chat with them at the after-funeral luncheon. But people not wanting to chat with that person was not a result of suffering for righteousness. It was a result of her being awful. Yes? Good. Yes. Don't be that way. Sometimes preaching is meant to be direct, meddlesome. (laughs) Persecution, thirdly, is not because we are difficult or offensive. See previous illustration. Yeah? Not because we're difficult or offensive. None of these are... If you are difficult, offensive, if you are fanatical and overzealous, if you are stupid and evil, and you go through hard times... You cannot know if you are suffering for righteousness' sake because all that other garbage fogs up the picture. See? If you are being persecuted, you are not being persecuted if. I just was thinking about this as I was processing these texts and this idea, and I came up with a few things I want to make sure to make as clear as possible. First, you are not being persecuted if others disagree with you and or challenge you about your faith. That's going to happen all the time. We live in a society where there's tons of diversity and people have all kinds of different thoughts. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. 
You are not being persecuted if others challenge or disagree with you and your stance is on faith. You are not. Second, you are not being persecuted if you are prevented in a public setting from giving a forceful demonstration. You know, uh, teachers can't, uh, they can't teach the Bible at school in a way that's inappropriate. Uh, this is not persecution. It's just that's not the place for it. Um, We are not persecuted because the department stores say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. It's just, they're just trying to be inclusive, and that's not such a bad thing. Yes? You're not persecuted because somebody says happy holidays to you. You are not persecuted uh, because you can't, um, you can't as a teacher preach the Bible when you should be teaching math. You're not persecuted then. We're not persecuted if our government creates laws that give equal rights to other people who do not share our values. Yes? We are not persecuted in this instance when the government makes laws to give equal rights to other people who do not share our values. I think this stems, has caused a lot of concern in Christian circles, and it stems from the reality that in our American culture, we have been the cultural majority for a long time, and I think that's changing. And I'm not saying I'm happy or anything about that, but it's changing. We're no longer the cultural majority. But if you think about the message of the gospel and of Christianity and the life of Jesus, the hope of the gospel has never been advanced through the means of what Timothy Keller refers to as Christian triumphalism. Where, and this is what I mean by that. We are the majority, and so we will vote to make laws that will force other people to live the way we want them to live. We are not being persecuted if the government gives equal rights to other people who do not share our values. We are not persecuted if we are no longer the cultural majority. We are persecuted if we suffer because of our faith when we hold it in gentleness and respect. We are suffering if we are doing good and it has adverse results in our lives. I want to point out, too, for sake of clarity, as you walk away this uh, morning, that there is a difference between persecution and prejudice. Persecution means that you are forced to pay a significant cost for staying true to your faith. You are tortured, you are imprisoned, you are put in jail, you know, prison put in jail, you are martyred, you are forcibly uh, silenced by your voice, you are... Um, Rights are taken away from you because of your faith that exist for everyone else that doesn't share your faith. That's persecution. Prejudice is different, though, and sometimes it gets confused, I think, at least in our minds. Prejudice means that people form preconceived opinions about us that are not based on actual experience or reason. Prejudice is when people form preconceived opinions not based on actual experience. And we can be, as Christians, the kind of church that starts to break down some of these prejudices. And we do it in the most simple way. And I love this because it's so accessible to anyone. You don't have to go to seminary. You, don't, you can do it. Every one of you can do it. We can simply start treating others with kindness and courage, with gentleness and respect. 
And instead of believing what other peop- the worst of other people, we believe the best. I always think of it in terms of, uh, my mind, it's in terms of politics. And I think of the Democratic and the Republican National Convention. And the purpose of those conventions is to rally the people who already agree with them. They're not trying to change people with a message who don't believe it. They are trying to rally their base. And Christianity has no place for rallying our base against others. <laughs> we rally our base to, base to embrace others. And so we can break down prejudice, can't we, in the way we live out our faith. But prejudice is different than persecution. So what is persecution? I've given you a slight definition, but I want to develop this a little more. Persecution or suffering because of righteousness does look like the following. It looks like paying a significant cost or being persecuted in spite of practicing your faith with gentleness and respect. I think of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel prayed every day to his God in the quietness of his own home. And there were some other advisors in the court of uh, the Persian government who saw Daniel as a threat. And so they went to the king and they said, King, let's create a law that says you can only pray to you. And the king, being egotistical, thought, that sounds pretty good. Then people will have even a higher respect and obedience towards me. And he makes this law. But the advisors made the law because they specifically wanted Daniel to be punished. And the king really liked Daniel, actually. And so what happens is this. It's very famous. They stood, those advisors stood outside of Daniel's window, and when he did his daily private prayer, they caught him in the act, took him before the king, and the king had no choice but to throw Daniel in a den of lions. That sounds really weird. I'm glad our culture's not like that anymore. And so the king did. It was by his royal edict, and he put him in the den of lions. God shut the mouth of the lions. And Daniel comes out alive on the other side. The king is so upset that he throws the advisors in the den of lions and the lions are then hungry and eat them. Sometimes it works out that way, sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) Persecution in spite of practicing your faith with gentleness and respect is what persecuted because of righteousness means. Second, persecution... Uh, looks like being misrepresented in a negative way. Remember, uh, Matthew 5.11 says this, when they falsely say all kinds of evil about you. Falsely say. The early church had all kinds of false things said about them. In fact, there are three predominant things that were said about the early church, that they were cannibals, that they were incestuous, and that they were um, atheist. Why? They were cannibals because they celebrated the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the tokens of it. There's been a lot of difference in interpretation on that, but the language of it is this. The broken blood, this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. This is Christ's blood, which was shed for you. The culture that was uncharitable looked at that language and said, these people are cannibals and persecute them. Second, they were incestuous. It was very common, and we don't talk this way anymore very often, but it was very common to use the language of brother and sister to your your fellow Christian in, in the ancient world. And sometimes we still do this, that we are one family, the family of God, and, and, and our, 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 our fellow Christian is our brother or our sister. And then all of a sudden the culture said, well, they're marrying their brother and sister. They're incestuous and lastly, atheist, because Christians believe in one God. And if you know anything about Roman mythology and Roman faith, 
ancient Roman faith, they had the seven major gods, you know, uh, Zeus, Hera, uh, those ones. And then they had hundreds of other minor gods. And they gave tribute to them all, but Christians celebrated only one. And they were misrepresented in an uncharitable and false way, and they suffered for it. Third, persecution because of righteousness can look like others being afraid of the practice of your faith and how it will affect their power base. And we see this most clearly in the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus crucified? The theologically correct answer, which is of course correct, is that it was God's will. And of course that's true. But why on a human level was Jesus crucified by the people who crucified him? He was crucified because the religious Jewish leaders took Jesus before the Roman authorities because they couldn't crucify him on their own authority because Jesus threatened their power base. And there are times all the time when people are persecuted because of the practice of your faith and how it will affect their power base. What if that, this happens all the time. What if you're at your job and your boss does something that's not ethical and he wants to sweep it under the rug and you refuse to lie for him? How do you think that's going to go for you? Probably not good, right? This happens all of the time. As we think of this beatitude, we are, we're, te- we're asking the question, Uh, Who are the persecuted because of righteousness? And it really can be summarized in these words. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness are those who suffer for doing God's will. Who suffer for doing God's will. This kind of suffering, if we look at Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12, we see that it is something that is a worthy calling. (laughs) It is, in fact, the Bible says not bad things about suffering. It says good things, that you will be blessed and that you will be rewarded if you suffer and endure it, even though you've done no wrong. For God works it all out. What does it look like to live a life worthy of persecution, to live a a faith worthy of persecution? It looks like an intense pursuit of God's will, no matter the cost, while resisting any bitterness that would come into your heart as a result of unfair treatment. An intense pursuit of God's will, resisting bitterness at the cost that you might pay. For yourself and for myself, I pray that we will not suffer persecution, but I pray first and foremost that for you and for me, that I would have the courage to follow Jesus the courage to love with gentleness and respect, to treat all with kindness, and to stand firm in my faith in all the ways that are true to a life of follow, worthy of following the one who gave everything so that we might have everything. How will the person be blessed who does this? How will the persecuted for righteousness be blessed? The text says, Theirs is the kingdom of God. And you might notice that the text says the exact same thing in uh, chapter 5, verse 10 of Matthew 5, that it said about the first beatitude, the one about the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so what I think this is saying is that those who do these beatitudes, I think it's kind of what they call... uh, it's like first and last. It's, it's a, it is a bookmarker wrapping it all up because all of us who do these beatitudes are those 
who possess and display the kingdom of God, for that's what it means to inherit the kingdom of God, that it is yours and you display it. What is the kingdom of God? I say this all the time. It is nothing more than the reality of God. The kingdom of God is that place in reality, in physical reality, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so those of us who possess God, who have been transformed by his spirit, have been transformed to a radically different life, haven't we? A life in line with the Beatitudes. A life in which when we live that way, we possess and display the kingdom of God, where God's reality comes to earth as it does in heaven. And the great hope is that one day it will come in a full and final form. But until that day, we have the potential to foreshadow it here and now. I'm going to say one last story and then I'm going to pray and we're going to have a song. And the song is intended specifically to give you time to meditate on these Beatitudes and to think how you could live them out. A couple weeks ago in small group, we were talking about the seventh Beatitude, Blessed are the Peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God or the children of God. And we were talking about peace and you know how people want to pursue peace. And the question came up was, do you think our world will ever, can ever really be transformed by us as Christians and can experience greater and lasting peace? Or do we just have to wait for Jesus to return and make it all so? And I think we came to the consensus in our small group. And I know I believe this. I don't think we can usher in peace with our actions, but we can make a world of difference and a huge dent. Imagine a world where we as Christians, not the persons outside of the faith, don't even worry about the person next to you. Let them take care of themselves. Imagine a world where you and lots of yous were transformed by the reality of these statements and lived out radical love kindness, were transformed so that they were poor in spirit, were merciful, mourned, hungered and thirsted for righteousness, peacemakers, pure in heart, and were persecuted because of righteousness. Our world would look different. Let me pray for you so that it might be so in your heart. Father, I pray that you might transform us by these eight statements, that you would help us to meditate and reflect on them so that we might live them out in our everyday life. And I pray that our world and our reality around us might be changed for the better as a result and as we long and look forward to that day when you return and make everything right and everything new. I pray that the reality of God might come to earth And that Jesus might return soon, but until he does, help it come to reality in my actions and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen.